Hiya, pal. Got an idea. All right, mate, go on. I think we need to evolve the podcast. All right, what you got in mind? Well, why don't we just start recording all the chats we have when we're talking about leadership? Okay, what are we going to call it? Sense makers. Sense makers. Love it. And have we got a backer? Of course we have. Tsunami Sport. Quality. When are we starting? Now, get this end round and I'll put kettle on. Top man, I'll be round in five. Andrew Chambers is the founder and CEO of Tsunami Sport, a well-known sports clothing apparel brand that has kitted out national, regional and club sports teams around the world, as well as a large number of international schools. Andrew represented Hong Kong rugby at 15s and 7s and knows the Hong Kong rugby scene very well. He recently moved to New Zealand with his family to live a more sustainable life. He's not afraid to speak his mind and hopefully he'll do just that on the podcast today. So welcome to the show, Andrew. And Tell us a bit about that leadership journey you've been on. Oh, um, well, it's been a, it's it's been a, a leadership journey of trial and error, to be honest. Um, falling myself falling into an industry that uh, I had no previous sort of um, educational background in from university. Um, I I found myself making rugby kits because, quite frankly, I couldn't find any good ones that I wanted. So it's definitely been a um, a uh, entrepreneurial journey um, from start to finish. And well, it's still going on now. So still learning every day. I'm interested in your mindset there, Andrew, right from the off, you know, you've said you were playing rugby, you had no intention of being in textiles, fabric, sales, kit making or manufacturing, but you couldn't find a decent rugby kit. So what made you, you know, chuck in maybe other career plans and, and think about actually doing something way out from what you were, were originally planning on doing? Um, I, th- I think it was possibly the environment that I was in, we were based in Hong Kong, which is obviously a city of amazing opportunities. Um, you meet people that can make uh, those opportunities come to fruition. Um, and that just seemed to be the way it was. I, I was a development officer at the Hong Kong Rugby Union at the time. And as always, you know, if you're bottom of the ladder, you tend to get fobbed off with all the rubbish jobs, which tended to be dealing with the kit guy, um, which I don't take personally anymore, but um, at the time. So uh, I just found it a very sort of difficult process. It was hard to find really good quality gear that fit and, and, and tick the purposes of what we were looking for at the time. So, and my then business partner, Nigel, was actually playing a little bit in that in that sort of uh, team wear field as well. So we, we both set about this journey of, of trying to make the end user's life a bit easier and, and also trying to do a bit better on the side that he was looking at. Tell us a few bits about those tentative first steps. What, what were the first things that you did to actually try and get this off the ground? Because you're talking about a company now that provides sports kit to you know, teams and schools all over the world. Yeah, look, I mean, I think a lot of people who, who talk about business and, and say that, you know, they, they had this grand plan and there was no luck involved. I generally don't believe that. Luck plays a major part and it certainly did for us. I think the timing of when we started as a brand um, was pretty critical. It created some amazing opportunities for us. Um, but I, um, so what could just repeat the question again? I've gone off on one. It's all right. I've forgotten as well. No. So, so I was just talking about those first sort of steps that you took. What, what were they? What did they look like towards making tsunami what it is today? Yeah, look, I think we found partners who would allow us to do the things we didn't know how to do, um, allowed to tick some initial boxes that we wanted to. You know, the initial reasons for setting up for tsunami. They allowed us to tick those boxes, but. 
they also removed, for example, the production side for us was something that myself and Nigel had very little experience in. Um, so we found some partners, obviously saw opportunities in us as well, because, you know, they, let's not be honest, they didn't do it out of the good of their heart. They were also making money by, you know, acting as a middle person for us as a um, supplier. Um, but we definitely sort of, um, from that, those opportunities and meeting those people, they were the ones that basically allowed us to run the business. And then actually sport was the one that, that opened up a huge customer base for us through the rugby community in Hong Kong and also the corporate community that actually played a role in, in making the rugby community so such an affluent um, sport that it was in Hong Kong at the time. And, and, and what, what, what did this look like, Andrew? You know, in, in terms of, you know, you, you sat down with, did you say your business partner was called Nigel? Sat down yeah. with Nigel, piece of paper in an office, right, we're going we're gonna to make some kit, Nigel. What do we do here? How does this work? You've just nailed it. I mean, how we produced some of the kit that we did, given the information we provided to this this factory, is beyond me. Um, we it was almost like hand drawn sketches. It was pretty average gear, and and it's a miracle that we did make the stuff we did. And um, look, I just think for us it was it, it, it we didn't have a long term vision. There was an opportunity that presented itself, and we kind of rolled with it. And within a year. Um, we, we've established a profitable business that, you know, and to this day, you know, our most profitable years we've ever had were the first two years of business. Um, and that was, we, we had no overheads. Um, you know, we were basically working off deal for deal and, and we were literally working for no salary either. So we, the business grew really quickly. Um, and as that grew, we, it started and the competition then came into Hong Kong. We started identifying where we wanted our vision to be because we had to actually find a unique selling point um, rather than being two rugby boys that were just enjoying selling, you know, kits with no, no real competition, selling kit and actually making a reasonable amount of money at the time. You talk about the USP there. Give us a bit of a, an insight into what the tsunami USP is. So uh, I think you, you touched on, on the intro that we have been, and, and I'd like to hope remain the leading, uh, driver of um, environmentally and sustainably driven um, teamwear apparel. Um, and this came about uh, probably two years, well, it was two years into, into um, having Tsunami established, was we were producing in a factory where all the other brands were also producing. Um, and we probably had the smallest marketing budget out of all those big brands. Um, and therefore, the only thing that was differentiating us was actually maybe design work which the other brands were increasingly getting better at as well. So we, we had to go and find something different. Um, and we'd also then become a lot more familiar with where we were producing our products. Um, and we weren't doing anything wrong, but they certainly weren't a visual representation of what we wanted our product to be or where we wanted our products to be made. Um, so we set about a bit, a bit of a mission to, to one, try and find a more environmentally driven uh, product and also actually to produce it in an environment that we would be slightly more proud of um, than the places that were already making our product. And your experience, obviously, as, as a sports development officer and you've played rugby at a high level, how did your values that you demonstrated in sport, how did they transfer across to business? Um, look, I, I, I refer back to a lot of my leadership skills and just general day-to-day -day values that I live by 
have all come through sport. Um, I think we, we often you two, we, we've talked about it in terms of I wasn't the most academic kid and, and, and really craved and thrived those sort of Wednesday afternoons when rugby was on or football was on or, or PE. And those values that I, I sort of, I learned through that was, was basically about grafting, hard work, and, and what became almost what my favorite word, which is grit, was just a bit of tenacity. And, and the more people told you you couldn't do it, the more I had a desire to do things. And I think in the business world, for sure, look, it's, you know, I, I still find it a bit odd that, um, you know, I'm sitting here talking about leadership or talking how business has gone because, you know, from an educational point of view, I now see that the educational model that I was in failed me hugely and it just didn't suit me. And actually I've learned very quickly and self-taught myself through trial and error um, how to run a business. Um, granted, it hasn't been, um, you know, we're not a ginormous business, so those mistakes haven't been hugely costly, but, you know, we've experienced them, we've learned from them um, and we've evolved just through those experiences. And I guess that's very similar to a team environment, right? You, you learn from every, you know, defeat or win, you take something away from it and the good and the bad. And I think that's exactly the same that what I've, I've got from my sports world. Yeah, I, you, you've touched upon mistakes there. And what, one of the, one of the clear ones for you guys, establishing a brand called Tsunami and then <laughs> the Boxing Day famous Tsunami hits. How do you yeah. respond to that? Um, I mean, it, it was interesting. I mean, first of all, I think visually for everybody, it was, it was a pretty horrific um, time in, you know, in mankind to see uh, nature probably do one of its most blatant devastations that, that it had. And it was so close to home in Hong Kong as well with a lot of people in Thailand and Sri Lanka at the time during Boxing Day. And look, we, we initially, um, I'll be honest, probably for about a day, it didn't really hit me that our brand was associated or would be associated to, to what had happened. Um, and obviously that came to fruition quite quickly afterwards when people started talking about it. Um, and the event obviously affected a lot of people. Um, but like I say, we started off on a next to nothing budget um, and everything we did have, we'd put into ordering labels and packaging and all that type of stuff. So from a financial perspective, we were almost um, tied by the fact that we, we couldn't we couldn't change the brand name. Um, we also didn't have a good name in mind afterwards anyway. We did talk about it. Um, so we actually pushed through and, and it probably helped us visually as a logo because we dropped the word tsunami for probably about 18 to 24 months in certain areas. Um, so our logo is quite recognizable in certain parts of Asia. Um, rather than being you know, the brand Tsunami Sport. So but we, we, we pushed through, but it was certainly about being, being very sensitive to the people that it would have directly affected. Yeah, tell us, tell us about some of those other mistakes you might have made along the way. Really interested in that. Um, I mean, you know, there's the big visual ones. I mean, we've always prided ourselves on and believing that our product is our best advert. And we've always believed that if you get our kit on, then we hopefully have got you for life because um, we, we believe strongly that you know our fabrics and our cuts etc are, are the best in the market and that and that's what we really want to deliver is not just a sustainable message but a really a really good product um but you know the, the most blatant one on, on a world stage was um we, we we were looking for any opportunity to get um our kit on on the on the international rugby stage and 
that opened up with Madagascar. Um, we didn't hunt them down. It was an opportunity that uh, landed on our doorstep that Madagascar were coming to the Hong Kong Sevens. They were going to play Fiji in their group, um, and we had an opportunity to kick them out. Um, first of all, we totally underestimated the size of uh, those guys from Madagascar. They were tiny, um, <laughs> so they got a lot of big kit. Um, and then they, um, not only did they get some big kit, they got kit on that Friday night at Hong Kong Sevens. It bucketed down with rain. Um, and when they walked off the pitch, uh, luckily they've got the big sponsorship hoardings and stuff on the field. So they were all covered in these sort of uh, Cathay Pacific and HSBC prints. But the shirts had run into their white shorts, which we picked up pretty quickly um, and had a bit of a panic. And, uh, you know, I guess it builds, you know, we might touch on it later with regards to relationship with suppliers. 24 hours later, Madagascar had a brand new produced kit back over the border and uh, ready for their Saturday afternoon game. So that would have been pretty catastrophic if people had recognized that, you know, we basically sent these guys out in a, in a kit that was running in, in one one game of rugby in the rain wasn't, wasn't going to be a good thing for us. <laughs> and, and it is a learning process, isn't it? And I, and I love the fact you, you touch upon trial and error and you get things wrong and you're honest and you're old, you're hand up. How important is that that honesty in an, when you're leading an organisation to say, you know what, I've got that wrong, I'll move on and accept and take responsibility for it? Yeah, look, I think integrity and if, you know, it's like when you're a kid, if you tell your mum and dad fibs, it will catch up with you at some point. And, um, and, and it's like that in business. I believe if, if, you've, if you haven't done a good job, um, I think you've got to put your hand up and you've got to rectify it quickly. And, you know, sometimes, you know, some of our longest standing relationships have been built on an error and it's how we've delivered and reacted on that service and that fix that is actually established and built in that, that relationship. Because, you know, the last thing you want, if something goes wrong is to be, you know, uncontactable, unavoidable. And, you know, I think you, you've got to be at the end of that phone go, actually, you know, we've, we've had a few situations, but actually we think we might have a product error. We've actioned this this fix. Let us know how you go, and and I think that says a lot about the brand, and that says a lot about the values that that we have in, in our expectations of our own product. That I think is exactly the same as what a customer would expect. So, um, yeah, look, I, I think it's 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 very important that you put your hand up and you and you rectify your errors very quickly. Good stuff. The the values you've touched upon there, where you've got your hard work, your grit your your graft as you call it did you take them and try and put them as part of the vision for the first tsunami or was there other people involved that then shaped your values um i think um i think i think myself and nigel were very similar in terms of our characteristics in terms of you know we were both hard-working individuals in the sports field probably not the most skillful, but we made up for that with endeavor and, and hard work. And I think that was exactly the same from a business perspective that we knew that we were going to have to put the, the hard hours in. And, you know, there's no doubt about it through the whole process. And, and to this day now, hard work still is outdoing my uh, planning and, and all that type of stuff. You know, I, I'm not the best planner. Um, and there's certainly on, on multiple areas, I could have probably done things a lot more efficiently and a lot quicker had I maybe sat down and planned a bit better. Um, but I just think at the end of the day, I think you can, you can always make something work if you've got, you know, a bit of a desire to get there. Um, and I guess as you grow, those financial consequences get bigger. 
um, and you've got to be a little bit more calculated. But I still think you've got to give it, you've got to give something a go. If you if your gut says go for it, I still reckon you've got to back your gut. Yeah, back in your gut, and we can, we can <laughs> just go in another avenue there where recruitment. So do you do you recruit? people who share your values or you try and get that diversity in there and and similar to what you've just said there do you then employ someone on that gut basis or you're going on the data evidence that that comes in um i don't i don't honestly think i could sit down and, and tell you what qualifications 95 percent of my staff have got um there's skill sets obviously your accountant needs to have certain qualifications to fill their roles um but for example, sales staff, it's, it's about personality. Um, it's about their background, you know, what, what, where have they come from? Um, what are their passions? You know, does it excite them to do their job? Um, I really do believe that you build a team on, on, on characters and you're always going to have your, yeah, your salesman's always going to be like your striker or your, you know, your, your fly half or whatever it may be. And, and he's going to be your rock star. It's how you manage that and how your team around him sort of facilitates that kind of the ability to let him be the maverick, so to speak. And, and I think that it, it kind of fits around that. And I, I have certainly found this year through COVID, um, it's been a real test from a, a human resource point of view in terms of managing people's expectations, um, you know, the highs and lows that people are going through, the difficulties that they're having from family to even even slightly on a mental health perspective you know people people react very differently to having exercise removed or having social opportunities removed from them um definitely is you know i've seen a correlation in in, in the workplace of how people have behaved and but going back to your your, your your question i think i will probably you know if it's a 50 50 call i'll probably pick a personality over a higher qualification so a lot of the people that work at your place and Andrew would follow those same kind of values of hard work, grit, graft. Do you try and recruit from that same sort of um, sphere of, of, of essential skills? Yeah, I think so. I, I, if, you, if you work in a small company, you can't hide and you've got to have the ability to be flexible and adapt to opportunities and actually be asked to do roles that might be above and beyond what you're supposed to be doing. Um, you know, you fake it till you make it sometimes, and you've also got to put some accountability and, and, and I guess a little bit of um, responsibility on, on your team to, to make decisions for you. I don't want to be a dictator who sits there in my company and makes decisions. I, want, I actually want my team to grow into those roles and, and make decisions for themselves. As long as the vision is clear of where we're trying to go, you'd like to hope that they would make a decision with the best interest of getting to that vision as quickly as possible. Um, or at least support that vision. So they're all kind of instilled with that that authority to make calls um, or the best judgment call um, within their sort of roles. How hard how hard has that been for you, Andrew? Going from, you know, like you said, the guy in the office sketching out the designs and doing everything, and not taking any kind of of, of wage or salary, and this being your life, to now starting to step back a little bit and allowing other people to make those decisions. Just describe the challenges of that to us a little bit. Um, well, it, it's been magnified because I moved to New Zealand. Um, I've only managed to get back to the office once this year, um, which I'm, I'm missing it hugely. I'm, I'm missing the work environment uh, in, a, in a really big way. Um, I'm one of those people, socially, uh, I love going to the office. Um, probably a bit of a distraction, like I was at school. Um, and, you know, but it's, um, I've been very lucky that 
the team that I have, and you know, and we have we've had to scale down because of COVID. The team that I have got is my probably the ones that buy into the vision the most. Um, they they play those. They they've been in the company the longest, or they they play a senior role in their departments. Um, so I'm I'm very lucky in that I trust them, um, and it has been very difficult. Um, I I I was a little bit sort of micromanaging, a little bit power crazy at some points where. If I've got a vision and I can be a bit narky, there's no doubt about that. I guess that'll touch on one of my leaders where I think I'm trying to be a better person. Um, maybe not as uh, as grumpy as I can be at times, but you know I've got to start trusting. For example, the creative team they're 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 considerably younger than me, and I have to recognise that not everyone wants to dress like a middle-aged man on the rugby field anymore. People, <laughs> you know, there's there's certain there's certain styles, designs, cuts that for me. Are quite ridiculous but at the end of the day that's where the sports are evolving to and, and and the expectations of that sort of generation who are buying our product are at and i'm not there anymore before it was easy i was selling to myself so it, by default if we want to be successful i was always going to have to relinquish some of those responsibilities and how hard was that how hard was that conflict of you know this is my company this is what i've built this is this is everything i'm about and then actually allowing yourself to step back and say, okay, I, I, might, I might not know the answer to this and I, I've just got to take a breather and let other people do it. Did you learn that through making the mistakes in the first place? Were there people working with you that were honest enough to, uh, to point that out to you or what was that another way that you worked that out? Um, I, mean, I, think, I think it's like imposter syndrome as well. I, I've always struggled to be the boss, so to speak. I, I, I don't feel like a boss. I don't feel like I'm a I sit above anybody else and, and anything like that. And I do recognize that people come to me for certain things, but I, um, so I've never really said my company, my way or anything like that. I've always had a relatively sort of democratic way of doing things. And I think that also comes down to probably a lack of confidence that comes from school where I just didn't feel confident in my own conviction. It was always about sort of looking around going, actually, don't worry, four or five people also think we should do this as well. And, it also reassures me and it also means that I've got a buy-in from my team. Um, I'm also awesomely lucky that, you know, um, my brother is our creative director and he's my little brother. So he's, he's slightly, well, not slightly, he's got, his, he's got his finger on the pulse a lot more than I have. Um, and in true brotherly love, he's got no problem telling me the truth. Um, <laughs> and sometimes in the most unprofessional means possible, but he does tell me that. And, and that's been really awesome for me because I know that he will tell me, and I've also got, you know, for example, Gareth, who is our global head of sales. Gareth will tell me if I'm being unreasonable, delusional, um, and and he will he will very comfortably tell me his opinion, and I really value that, and it's important because actually, quite often, dare I say it, that they've been correct, and I've got to, you know, relinquish that and not be embarrassed to say, well, actually, yeah, you are right. Actually, I, I love that because that instills confidence among the whole team that actually you can challenge AC and he will listen. And there's, there's times where I've said, that's ridiculous, not going to happen. This is where it's going to be. Um, but I'd, I'd be, I'd be very disappointed in myself if I removed that environment where my team didn't feel comfortable about challenging me or at least putting their opinion on the table. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's worth exploring that there's a couple of different um, angles I'd, I'd like to explore there. I think the first one is that sort of, 
idea that, like you said, there are times when it might be a, a democracy and it might be something where actually, yeah, let's take in people's opinions here. You know, we, we've got to work this out together because I don't know the right answer. There'll be other times, as you alluded to there, where you just say flatly, no, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen that way. And it's going to happen the way I want to. How do you decide which one's right and at which times? Is there a, a magic bullet for that? Is there a magic way of doing it? I guess it, it, you know, it goes to gut. Um, and then you do now, very lucky that, like I say, we've got that team. It, it might be a decision that's been, you know, uh, held back by a financial decision. You know, what are the consequences if this does fail, if it doesn't work? Um, a lot of it actually is usually around product and, um, and design. So the consequences of the error aren't necessarily humongous. Um, and I've had a couple of told me so's. Um, I did a pair of polka dot board shorts once for an event for merchandise. I overruled everyone. Everyone said it was ridiculous. Um, and in fact, if you want a pair, I've still got a bucket load of them in the warehouse because we hardly sold any of them. And, and it's my, you know, and that was probably one of the first times where, the, where I did override the team where it was literally everyone was going, AC, you've lost the plot. And I was like, no, 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 these are going to sell these. They're going to be awesome. Um, hideous. They don't look great. Um, I made a mistake. And I put my hands up. And, you know, it's a running joke in the office. Every now and again, the old, uh, the old polka dot board shorts that uh, never quite sold. So, so, so no, not necessarily a procedure that you go through in your head, no checklist as such. It's that gut feeling that you automatically go back to and think, if this is something that's worth sticking your oar in about and being stubborn around or whether it's something where there is some flexibility. Uh, I think the, the biggest one, and it's, it's everything that we are as a brand from a, from a, um, from my DNA is our sustainability side. It's the one sticking point where I have refused and will refuse to deviate or, um, you know, there is no doubt about it. My sales team could sell, 50% to 100% more kit if it wasn't sustainably produced um, because we could we could be slightly more price competitive. We could source from markets. There are so many things that we could do to cut corners that would remove our unique selling point, but we could make a lot more money. And I think that's where it's the one thing where everyone knows that you can challenge AC all he wants, but he's not going to budge on this. So all the other things, are up for grabs i'll talk about anything new products if we can make it sustainably um, and and that's ultimately what it comes down to if we can make this sustainably and it's not going to be a huge detriment financially if it wasn't to work out then let's go for it but that is the one thing where it's a non-negotiable we everything we produce has to have a sustainable aspect to it um, and we have to be producing it in the most environmentally sensitive way that we can. You talk about non-negotiables there, Andrew, and what about if you've got their members of staff that don't really buy into your vision and they, they're not really buying into your core values and they're displaying behaviours that are against your non-negotiables? Tell, tell us about where that's happened and then how you've dealt with that situation. Um, and we, we do joke about the walk of shame. So if anyone comes home, <laughs> comes in, they're, they're not nude and we're not whacking them with anything. But, you know, it's, um, it, it's one of those things where I think the environment's being set. The, the logic behind what we're doing is, you know, we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not bonkers. There is logic behind our, for example, our sustainability values. You know, 
single-use plastic, etc. There is reason behind that, and I think a lot of people. And it's, it's a it's a it's a major question in interview about it, and you know, what do you do from a sustainable point of view? And people have to see value in in what we do, otherwise they just they simply wouldn't fit into the environment that we we've already created. Um, and look, people do challenge it, um, and you need that. I, I think it's really important that you you see both sides of it. But the gist of what we do, and, and you know, it, it goes all the way to the suppliers as well. We don't have suppliers that don't buy into our values. Um, they're an extension of us. They represent us. They produce our product. So we need to know that you know the DNA and, and, and the origins of where our product is coming carries the same values that is inside our office. Um, and the staff are an extension of us as well. So, you know, if you see one of my staff members at a, you know, at a function or something like that, and they're, they're behaving in, in a, you know, um, what would be deemed as, as pretty poor characteristics or whatever it may be, then that to me is a reflection of us as a, we're a small brand. So they are a direct extension. I think everyone takes that responsibility on quite seriously. Um, so we've never really been in a position where we've been challenged that way in terms of someone really, against what we're about um a lot of people apply for the job for the very reasons of, of why what we do stand for so um touch wood we haven't really been fe- faced with that sort of uncomfortable situation yeah that that idea of people applying and knowing what you're about um i, I think would be apparent you know you are a a unique brand in terms of, of sportswear and apparel you know you, you hear a lot of stories on the news whether founded or not around where Adidas kits come from, where Nike kits come from. And you, you early early doors in this conversation said, listen, you wanted to separate yourself from some of the practice that you saw that was going on. That wasn't that you were doing anything wrong, certainly wasn't illegal, but it, it, was, it was doing something in a way that maybe didn't sit right with you. So, so tell us, what is it about that sustainability? We spoke to Darcy Lunn a couple of months back, and I know that you, you've done work and you know Darcy, and he talked about teaspoons for change. He talked about everybody making a small change to what they're doing, whether it's your plastic straw, your plastic bag. If everybody did that consciously, that's going to have a huge impact on. So you could have done one thing along your chain, couldn't you? You could have decided upon one thing, whether it be manufacturing or marketing or production, whatever point it was, you could have made one small change and that could have sat with you, I imagine, quite comfortably, and you could have thought, okay, as a company, we're being, we're being um, responsible here, sustainably. We're, we're trying to make a small step to help. What made you actually go the whole hog and decide, well, actually, this isn't enough for us. We're, we're going to be completely sustainable as a, as a brand and do something completely different, because that's a huge, a huge uh, thing to take on, isn't it? Yeah, look, and. I don't want to pretend that we we decided on day one that we were going to be everything we've done has always been sustainable and, and you know we've actually made exactly what Darcy sells you know that teaspoon for change we've made incremental improvements on us as a business and as um, as individuals and everything we're doing and we we're we're far from perfect um, there's loads of, my list is as long as my arm in terms of what I'd love to be doing and um, but within the limitations that we have. If we can do it in a certain way, we will. And, and we're constantly addressing different aspects. For example, our current suppliers that we use now, where we've been very lucky that we've actually met them very early on in their in their existence. So they've allowed us to make an impression and they bought into our vision. So very quickly from a production side, we've managed to find um, sort of partner factories that have made their incremental improvements as well. Um, and likewise, by the way, we source and it also has come with expertise. Um, we have a production manager called Kai who's fantastic. And you know, 
there's so many facets of our product, you know, from our trims to our packaging to our fabrics, that there are so many little incremental improvements that we're always making there that for me, even lack my lack of knowledge in that field are being made and I'm being informed about going, wow, I didn't even know we could do that. Um, and I think that's what's really important that people, you know, there's a, what's the phrase um, where, you know, we actually need everybody doing sustainability imperfectly rather than a few people doing it perfectly. That's all we need. We need people, and certainly in my industry, we need the industry to be looking at itself and finding a better way to produce what they produce. Um, and we need our consumers to also think smarter about why they're buying things. Do they need things? Where's it coming from? And asking those questions. Because at the end of the day, your customer is everything about your business. If they start asking questions, they'll drive the change. Um, and I think that's what's really important that you know, all of the little things that we've done, I get quite excited when someone, I wouldn't get, that's not true, I don't get excited, but I do get motivated when someone calls me out on something. You know, our latest packaging for four or five years, the packaging we're using, we thought was the best packaging going, but actually it was awful. Um, and very quickly someone pointed that out. Now we could have reacted to it in a way like, no, 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 this is what we do. And, but actually, no, I sat down with a lady and she explained her, her view on it. And we made it our mission within minutes of walking out of that meeting that we need to go find better packaging. Um, and that was, you know, the ability to listen to people. And, and I think you, you guys, we touched on it before about that feedback or, 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 you know, not doing a good job and how you react to it. We could have just got our back up and defended ourselves. No, we do everything right. We're the most sustainable brand, but we're, we're, we're very, um, honest and that we know there are always going to be improvements and certainly where the industry is going it's so exciting there's some of the smart things that people are doing we've just got to be and, and, and the industry's got to be willing to adopt those and give them a try and if you find the right customers actually they also get excited by the opportunity of pioneering a new fabric or things like that and i think that comes down to transparency and being also very clear of the values and, and of where the brand's trying to go yeah, and then that idea of taking on feedback and being able to respond to that um, appropriately, and like you said, not be defensive and not be um, and, and not feel attacked or aggressed by that is is a real skill, isn't it? That's not an easy thing to do. Oh, I, I, I'm not going to pretend. I, I, I've said a few curse words about her as well, but I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, she just put a pile of work on my desk. But you know, and it, it, it is. It, you're 100 right. You you can take feedback in any way you choose to take it. Um, and look, there's feedback we've received that we, we have ignored in, in terms of, we believe that we are doing right. And, and there's always gonna be someone with an opinion, but I think it's important to listen to people's opinions um, and then come to a conclusion from that yourself. Um, and, and look, like I say, we're, we're a small company of, of, of 20 people, 20 plus people. And actually it's great to get feedback from customers because they've got a perspective that we don't have. So. Perfect. I encourage it. Yeah, for sure. To tell us a few of these ideas that you've got in the pipeline that you talked about. You said you've got ideas, a, a list as long as your own for sustainability. Oh, look, we've, we've got a fabric, uh, and I don't want to give away too much, but there's, um, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's an opportunity from a fabric perspective that would, I believe, will, will revolutionize the way we look at polyesters and, and man-made fabrics. Um, and the way we can we can definitely produce it in a better means. Um, and I'd also like I, I believe people are, are critical to any business. Um, 
But I certainly think for the ability to produce on demand, um, technology plays a major part in that. And I think there's some really exciting innovations that are going to come with, with technology and the ability to produce products um, quicker, um, probably more accurately, um, with, with significantly less wastage. Um, and that's one of the biggest problems that, that uh, the textile industry has is actually the amount of wastage that we produce, um, probably more through mass production, not so much the teamwear industry. Um, but from, a, from an environmental point of view, that, that is a major, major problem that, that needs to be addressed. Let's touch upon the effects of COVID, Andrew. And I know from, from being involved in a, in a startup school myself and a budget that's had to be reduced because of decreasing student numbers. And I'm sure you're seeing in business where people are pulling out of deals or where they're not providing, they, they want a cheaper product. How do you align that with your then values? Because that's hard, isn't it? Because you want to provide as cheap, but with good quality. And then a school might come to you and say, look, we can't afford to do that. We want a cheaper with the current situation that's going on in the world. Yeah, uh, look, it, it's, um, it's been a really difficult year. There's no way of disguising that. Um, and it's been a real eye opener. I mean, um, it's, it's highlighted some really cool relationships that we thought we had and, and, and we have got, and which has been great. Um, it's also understanding, and I, I've always thought sort of communication is, is critical, and you'd like to hope that the relationships that we've forged, particularly with schools and the added value that we bring from the educational side and um, et cetera, will carry you through this difficult period. Um, and it's about, you know, I like contracts because it, cements that kind of relationship but at the flip side of that as well i think contracts can actually um, limit you to actually doing a better job um and i found that with a few schools where they've assumed that they're they're tied into a deal or, or a price list that potentially is yes that worked for you two years ago but circumstances have changed and i think that's important that we've demonstrated over the year and, and it's credit to the sales team we've got that you know, we've been very proactive of going and, and understanding schools' positions. Some schools are great. You know, they're doing fine and things are, are cruising along. Other schools are in very different positions. And we've always sold ourselves as trying to be a partner rather than a supplier. And it's about forging those relationships so that we can, we can help find solutions and emphasize that, you know, just because the contract has a you know, minimum spend on it, let's be honest, the world has changed, the climate's changed. We want to maintain a long-term relationship. So how can we maintain that um, during the difficult times? And I think we will come out of this year with far more cemented relationships than we did before COVID. Um, and we've gained some as well because of our values and we've also lost them. Um, so it's been a, a real up and down, up and down year for sure. Yeah, it, it, it's tough. It's tough for us all. And, and when you look from those perspectives of schools where, if they can cut costs on kit, it can save a teacher's job. And you've got to look at where the priorities lie. And how do you, when you go into schools or organisations, what do you do in terms of marketing your sustainability? Because it is a real key, unique selling point. How can we get that across to the whole parent and, and school body? Um, well, first of all, we, we, schools have focused us because the next generation is, is, is the kids at school at the moment, and they're going to be the consumers for the future, the decision makers. Um, 
and, and that's one of the reasons behind that and it's about educating them to the reasons you know they're exposed to you know such an incredible the frivolous consumer mindset um that trying to change that is, is pretty critical for us um the educational side for us is, is is the added value is that we want people to understand why we do what we do um and it, you know it's important to say that we we aren't more expensive than a lot of brands because schools have allowed us through economies of scale to meet those price points now and i think that's what's really important that actually to do good doesn't always mean that it's going to cost you more um and and, and touching the, the the parent base has always been um you know very i think you know when we first met at british school manila i am uh, i you know frivolously offered simon mann uh, an opportunity to have a, a bit of a town hall opportunity and welcome the parents in and there was one mum there that um she was gunning for me and it was uh, it was a really really interesting experience um to understand what she was after and um you know but but to have that platform to explain things everyone left that room with a very clear picture and understanding why at the time British School Manila had made that decision to go down the sustainable route. And I don't think anybody begrudged the school that decision. And I think that was really important. Um, and it's also, like, like I said, the, the opportunity to sit down with kids is awesome. We talk about feedback. They've got some of our best ideas. All of our stock packaging is 100% where we fold our socks to the fabrics we use to um, to package them has a hundred percent come from what used to be a plastic packet in a long a long drawn out sock. Over three different students have, have have progressed that packaging, so we get a lot from kids as well. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of two way traffic. That that sounds amazing, and it, it just reminds me of those kids in Bali from, from the green school there who did the beach cleanup and organized the zero plastic policy in, in Bali. That, that, that's amazing. That's, it is something that we'd love to get kids involved in is that sustainability message because it's the think, feel, act rather than just, oh, here's my beautiful kit. How have you actually got that kit? Where has it come from? What are you actually doing to, to save the environment as a result of it. So we absolutely love that. But tell us a bit now then, Andrew, about the move to New Zealand, because that, that seems to be the centre of all things green. How, how's that gone in terms of a, a family choice to be more sustainable as, uh, as a living choice? Um, look, it, it's, been, um, it's been a really tough year as a family, um, just because we were a very close family. So all of our family, um, grandparents, uncles and aunties, all in Hong Kong. So... Um, from, from an emotional point of view, it's been, it's been really quite tough. Um, we're a bit family sick. I wouldn't say we're Hong Kong sick, but we're definitely family sick. And, um, but coming to New Zealand has been, you know, yeah, it's, it's been, uh, incredibly lucky. Um, it's a country that is pretty much, you know, bar six to eight weeks, um, has managed to almost have, um, a normal lifestyle. Kids are at school, people are playing sport. Um, you can travel the country and it's, a, it's an amazing country with regards to opportunities from surfing to skiing to great trail running and you know, live sport on. So New Zealand's been, been very special and we've really loved it. Um, but it's been a real eye opener for me as well, because my perception of New Zealand was that it's an incredibly green place um, from an environmental point of view. And it's, it's, it's not. Um, they've definitely got things in place and infrastructures are falling into place, but it's not quite where I thought it would be. And, and that's added a bit of, um, I wouldn't say frustration, but it's definitely made it more difficult for our our product to be sold because we sound a bit wacky, to be honest, because 
it's not something people are looking for at the moment is a product that's made sustainably. Um, so it's been a very different, uh, a lot of the sales tools that we've used globally, we've had to water down a little bit and, and, and trying to make it a little bit more, I wouldn't say simpler, but just a bit more, uh, outlining the issues of why we make the product the way we do. Wow. It's another example of how the context shapes the narrative, eh? Oh, I mean, I walk down the beach here and if I see a piece of plastic, it, it it's literally like, oh, you just don't see it. New Zealand is a phenomenally beautiful place. Um, and, you know, the reason that, you know, your Manilas and your Jakartas and, you know, your Barleys are having these massive plastic drives because it's such a visual problem. Um, when you're sitting in the shores of New Zealand and you don't see any plastic on your beaches for weeks on end, it's not a problem. So why do you need to source a sustainable product? Why do you need to change your mindset when you walk into, you know, your 7-Eleven type place and go and buy your bottle of Coca-Cola? It's not a problem here. Well, out of mind, you know, and, and that's the way it is here. It's, it's not in sight. It's out of mind. It's not a problem. And it's a global problem. It's not a problem that belongs to Indonesia or Philippines or Hong Kong or anything like that. It's a global problem. So it's interesting because you are so far away from everything. Is that do you feel that in the mindset of the country? Because you hear it, you read the the books about the All Blacks, you watch the programs. Uh, I think at all costs and on Netflix, and and you see that their values are very much actually in line with your company values. Is that uh, that honesty and that graft? Is that how you feel it is like in New Zealand? Yeah, look, I think it's a hugely relationship driven. Um, and it's about, you, you've got to earn the trust of people here and that doesn't come quickly. Um, there's no way of fast tracking that. Um, and it's that trust in the product as well. And because we're, yeah, we're on the ground here, but not as visually as some of the other brands. So it's, it's about building up that, um, that trust, not only in the product, but also me as an individual and, and anyone else who does represent us. It's about building that. And that's been something that um, I like. I mean, some of the, the values and characteristics of New Zealand that I've, I've fallen in love with is, you know, common sense exists here, which is just gold. Um, having living in Hong Kong, you know, the computer says no, um, it's been very frustrating. Um, but moving here, you know, the autonomy and people having the ability to make decisions and think on the spot has been really quite refreshing. So, and also the language barrier. It's the first time that I've ever lived somewhere where the mother tongue is English and I've, it's, it's been quite, uh, really quite refreshing. No, it's, it's certainly a place when I visited, I, I could live there tomorrow. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. And you touch upon relationships there and you've alluded to it throughout the podcast, how important relationships are in, in any business. As, as the CEO, what do you think are the core, real uh, sort of core values of having relationships at the centre of your thinking as the CEO? Um, I, I think trust is so important um, because a lot of the a lot of the people that we would be dealing with, let's say, for example, schools and sports clubs, a lot of the people who are responsible, even in procurement of a school, are not specialists in the apparel world. And therefore, there is a huge amount of trust um, placed on us to make the right decisions on their behalf. And I think you've got to build that trust um, for sure. Um, reliability. Um, um, 
in, in that, you know, I think if you don't do a good job, your product's not reliable, your service is not reliable, you're not going to last very long. It needs to be an easy process. Um, so I, for me, they're the two most important things. And, and also, I think you've got to stand by your values. Um, I think very quickly you, you get found out if you, if you, you know, if you're greenwashing or you're not standing by the values that you've got. Um, and we're working really hard now to really open up the transparency of our supply chain so that people can really understand where we're coming from. Um, and that is all about building that trust and that understanding of, of what we're trying to do. And that gets them to buy into it as well. Um, and I think if we share those values, we look for the same values in return, um, which are not always easy to find um, and can be quite frustrating sometimes. But when you do find them, it's really rewarding. Oh, brilliant, Andrew. We're going we're gonna to look to wind it down with our quick fire questions now, just to finish off. So I know, I know you love these ones, Andrew. So your <laughs> three people that you would love to go out for a meal with, dead or alive, Andrew? Oh, um, so I think I'd have to go, uh, well, I've got my three leaders that I think would they inspire me. So I'm going to go with those three, which is uh, Yvonne Sherrard, who's the, the founder of Patagonia. Um, I think he's built a brand with incredible principles and values, and he's managed to move into the modern world and not digress from those. And, and I think that takes a, a lot of willpower um, to do so, he'd be one person I'd love to rack his brains. I, I, um, I tell you what, Andrew, just to, sorry to, to put in, but have you watched that um, Varsity Blues on Netflix where it's about the scam of getting kids into American college? The guy um, who organized the scam throughout the Netflix product is wearing Patagonia products. I was thinking, oh, I bet the owner of Patagonia doesn't like this because he's getting identified with a guy that's scammed and took in millions to then get kids into college. And I wonder if he knows about that. Is that a sort of thing allowed, Andrew? I don't know. Yeah. People have probably not noticed, but now you've just gone and told thousands of people. Thousands, <laughs> 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 steady on. <laughs> <laughs> Go on then, who's your next ones? Um, Nelson Mandela. Um, I just found him, obviously, as a rugby player, and um, what I saw, I've got no connection with South Africa whatsoever, but what we saw in that World Cup and the way that he used sport, um, the way in which he turned adversity and actually you think what happened to him and how he pushed through that to make a better change. Uh, I would love to be as good a human being as that. I don't know if I'd quite be good enough to do that because I still resent some teachers. So um how he went through what he did um and then moved on um, and the last one this will make you two laugh uh, given that my last answer last time we spoke was alan shearer um the, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it was uh, the dalai lama um i'm working very hard on trying to be a better person myself and um the philosophies that uh, buddhism has and things like that i'm, I'm not a religion person religious person whatsoever um but the philosophies and the way of living that, that he uh, he communicates and demonstrates is, is certainly something that I would love to have that mindset because I'm not very good at switching off either in terms of uh, stress and, um, and stuff like that. So they would be my three people that I'd be incredibly intimidated with those three, to be honest, because um, in terms of the achievements they've got, I'd have to, um, in fact, I'd probably put Alan Shearer, I'll have to invite him and give him my seat. I'll have Alan Shearer there as well. <laughs> <laughs> in, case the, in case the chat gets boring, I'll chuck him in and we'll just talk. 
He'll probably have a fight with him, to be fair. <laughs> Luis, to finish. Um, Andrew, what does infinite learning mean to you? Um, and we've touched on it a lot. I think it is um, the ability and acceptance that actually you don't know everything and opening your eyes up, willing to listen and willing to adopt opportunities, um, even if they contradict something that you uh, possibly used to believe very strongly in. Lovely. Can you tell um, our listeners, all those thousands of listeners, Andrew, um, <laughs> can, <laughs> can you tell them where you can uh, where you can read more about Tsunami Sport or the work that you're doing at the moment? Yeah, so obviously we've, we've got our website, which is um, tsunami-sport.com, and we've got a great page there with regards to covering all our sustainability goals and the history of where we've come, where we're trying to go. Um, so a lot of that stuff there. And obviously we're... We're also on LinkedIn, which is the grown up Facebook. Um, we're trying to grow up. Um, so we're, we're on LinkedIn as well. And uh, you know, we've not got a big marketing team. So we're always very reliant on our product and word of mouth. So if you see anyone wearing Tsunami, give them a tap up and tell them what they think. <laughs> Thank so you, Andrew. Top man. Oh, awesome. Thank you, you two. Uh, guys, Search Infinite Leaders live on YouTube and IGTV. We're on all popular pod podcast uh, platforms and we're at theinfinitelearners.com. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Click subscribe, leave us a review, and, and we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Sensemakers, brought to you by the Infinite Learners podcast and backed by Tsunami the number one ego kit provider for schools worldwide. You can learn more about Tsunami by, by visiting tsunami-sport.com. And if you want to hear more from the Infinite Learners, you can find us on your favourite podcast platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you.